Hello, I'm David Osman. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. With me today is Michael Churchill of Churchill Research. Our subject for this podcast, navigating the world with an inverted yield curve. The Independent Research Forum promotes a broad range of high-quality independent research and alternative data providers, both micro and macro. Some are stock pickers, some are sector-specific, some are country-specific, many are global, and all are investment-related. We live in confusing times for macroeconomists and global asset allocators. The recovery from the COVID pandemic and supply-side constraints have coincided with rising geopolitical tensions, deglobalization, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a spike in inflation, and a tightening of the monetary policy stance in most major economies. In the US, an inverted bond yield curve is pointing to an economic slowdown becoming a recession, but not all indicators of future economic growth are pointing in a negative direction. What does this mean for the world economic outlook and for bond and equity investors? To discuss these issues, I'm very pleased that we're joined today by Michael Churchill, the founder of Churchill Research. Michael Churchill has a long and distinguished career in the international financial arena. Before founding Churchill Research in 2002, Mike held various roles, including his role as an international economist for David Malpass at Bear Stearns, and as a food, beverage, retail and agriculture analyst for the Buenos Aires Trust Company. Churchill Research analyzes the world from both the top down and the bottom up. The first cut is macro, using their supply side economic model to identify countries and sectors that are likely to outperform or underperform. Next, they apply their bottom-up analysis, looking for interesting individual companies within targeted countries and sectors. The work is very opportunistic, and the themes under coverage change over time. There are two basic principles to their supply-side economics. The real value of gold never changes, and tax rates matter. The emphasis on gold also leads to a heavy focus on bond markets, The emphasis on tax rates has led them to become increasingly focused on government finances, particularly with respect to the emerging markets. Mike, welcome. Let's begin with a brief introduction to the service that is provided by Churchill Research to your clients. Thanks, David. Yeah, as you mentioned, I started the service in 2002, and there's three sort of tiers or levels of the work. There's the macro, the sector, and then the bottom up. And the macro is always the first cut because there's no point crunching stocks in sectors or countries that have the bad have bad macro. So the work ends up being a mix of macro and sector and stocks, and then you know politics as well because macro can get influenced by political factors. So over the course of the average week, I'll send out about three pieces. And then every month I send out the monthly with the portfolio. When I started the service 20 years ago, I decided the way to do this was with a real portfolio. So I took a hundred grand of my money and 
started the Classical Insights portfolio. And um, so that I present that every month. And then over time, I've started other portfolios, the Japan 20 portfolio, another Japan portfolio, an oil and gas portfolio, a Canadian oil and gas portfolio, a few others. You know, I'm a big fan of, of real portfolios with real money because it's another way to present what I actually think. And it's in some ways the best way because it's like independent of what's coming out of my mouth. It's where my money is. Now, the past year has been very macro-y because of this inverted yield curve. Uh, it's the biggest yield curve inversion in 40 years. So it's difficult to just crunch individual names in this environment because you have the constant problem of what we could call the picking up nickels in front of the steamroller problem. And I don't want to do that because I blew up in 2008, I blew up in 2011, and I blew up in 2020, and I'm tired of blowing up. And so the way you avoid that is when the curve is inverted, you raise cash. So I've been raising cash lately, although I will say that one area where you don't have the curve inversion problem is Japan. So over the past 10 years, I've done a lot with Japan, a lot with Japanese small caps and mid caps. You know, it's it's possible I'm the only person outside of Japan who has a service crunching small and mid cap Japan as part of what I do because just nobody does anything with it. And it's there's value all over the place there. So, Mike, starting with your first cut, how do you view the current macroeconomic situation? Well, okay, so we have this, we have, the curve is inverted by about 105 basis points between the one year and the 10 year. And uh, why did this happen? I mean, it goes back to the helicopter drop of 2020-21, which was, it was a, you know, a world historical event. It was enormous just gigantic. And so now it is being worked off. So you have M2 year over year is negative, but at a very, still at a very high level. So if you had the three-year rate of change of M2, it's still really high. And this is what's confusing everything and everybody is you have, oh, we have negative year over year evolution of this series or that series. Yeah, but the three-year rate of change is still high. That's why you have, you know, you have negative uh, year on year certain measures of economic activity, but unemployment is zero. Why is that happening? It's because if you take growth from 10% to zero, you're still in an enormous boom. It hasn't gone negative. And so the Fed is responding to this with these ever higher rates. And now we have the Fed fund futures turning up again. But the 10-year is smarter and wilier and looks further out and sees trouble. So that's where we are. And so this raises, well, okay, let me uh, make an aside here. And that is part of what I'm able to contribute over the past year is just falsification of incorrect theses. Because it's hard to come up with a table pounding call in this environment, but it is possible to falsify erroneous interpretations of the data. And one of the biggies is that we're reliving the 70s and that we're having some kind of wage price spiral. That is absolutely not happening. The 70s was a monetary error driven by the introduction of monetarism, basically targeting M2. That's not what's happening. This was a one-time deal. It was a one-time helicopter drop. And so just understanding that helps a lot because then you see the problem, then you see the risk, and then you see, then you have a framework for understanding what's happening. 
So then what? Well, a couple things. One, the option value of holding cash is rising. I mean, over the past 20 years, I've basically always been about 100% long. But lately, I'm a little less than 100% long, and I've been selling some stuff because, you know, okay, cash gives you 4% or whatever in the bank. But if you know there's a risk out there of uh, something bad happening, having dry powder is worth more than the percentage points that show up in your bank account. So that's an interesting concept. Then there's other things going on. We know we have the yield curve inversion, which is bad, but the CPI break-evens are still good. So one, one of the issues here is trying to measure where you're at in this process of working off this helicopter drop. And the CPI break-evens are a great, great way to do that. It's the difference between the uh, nominal five-year treasury yield in the five-year tips. And it's like 2.55% or something. And the target for the Fed is 2.35. So on that basis, monetary policy isn't actually tight yet. And then I watch gold, I watch silver, copper, steel, um, Fed fund futures. I watch those very closely. And we, you know, lately the Fed fund futures are going up and gold is going down. So, Mike, we're in a period of heightened uncertainty, but do you feel the global financial markets are adequately reflecting the realities of the economic outlook? And if not, why not? That is a very good question. I think the bonds are fairly priced. They're reflecting the uncertainty that exists as people try to understand where we're at with this process of normalization after the helicopter drop. With the stocks, it's harder because, let's take the oil stocks. I've done a lot with oil stocks over the past two years. Okay, so spot oil, West Texas is $77 and Brent's about 84. The 12 month futures are about five or $6 less. The stocks are pricing in less than that. If West Texas is 77, the stocks are pricing in like 62 or whatever. So I own a bunch of those things, but I have sold a few recently. You know, that's the challenge. Is 62 the right number given the risk of the inverted yield curve? I mean, this is why you go to work every day. You got to like constantly recrunch this and rethink all the inputs. Another interesting sector is airlines. Airlines have a natural hedge in that in recessions, the oil price goes down. So that's positive for their margins. And airlines tend to do all right in recessions. Uh, so I think the airline stocks are actually kind of cheap. So that's an area that works. And then, of course, we have Japan, where they don't have an inverted yield curve. Small and mid-caps are cheap. Balance sheets are solid. Monetary policy is pro-growth. And so that's one that works. You mentioned the importance of the gold price to your approach. And I just wonder, what is the gold price telling you about the future at the moment? So last September, we had a very interesting event. And that was, you know, you had the Bank of England had this crisis uh, with the pension funds potentially imploding. And from that point, we had a rally for three or four months. Gold went up, silver went up, copper went up, oil went up. And it looked like central banks were easing again and gold went up. And more recently, since the U.S. data started to turn hot again about a month ago, gold has been going down as it's been going down in step with the 12-month Fed fund future. 
So as monetary policy expectations tighten, gold goes down and silver goes down. I've actually become a big fan of watching silver as well. So what it's telling you is right now at the margin, investors are pricing in a stronger economy and tighter Fed expectations. And that's what's happening. So stocks are kind of looking at this and saying, well, the economy seems to be better. So so they're giving it the benefit of the doubt. I am concerned about that because, you know, the inverted yield curve historically never lies and eventually you pay. Now, there's one other interesting thing going on, and that is that over the years, gold has uh, traced tips, which is the real interest rate in the U.S. And the tips yield in the five-year went from negative two to positive two, and now is at positive 1.5. Gold should have imploded to $1,200 an ounce. Just the bottom should have fallen out of it last year, and it didn't. And that is a really interesting question why that didn't happen. And why, you know, copper is still $4, oil is still 77 despite this enormous rise in real interest rates. And this raises the issue of whether there is some alternate vehicle of monetary creation, let's say, or liquidity creation independent of the role of the, uh, the Fed itself and the funds rate. And the guy who really pushes this story hard is Michael Howell, who's an English guy. And I have gotten very interested in his work and following him to see if, if what he's saying makes any sense. I haven't been able to falsify it. I haven't been able to confirm it. But it raises this issue of whether there's some parallel track of money creation that has prevented golden commodities from falling despite the curve inversion. You have the huge helicopter drop, which in and of itself is a big liquidity creation event. But with this inverted curve, I don't know. You could say things should be worse than they are, or you could say that historically you need 12 to 18 months for the curve to work its magic and for the bottom to fall out. In which case, again, we're back to the picking up nickels in front of a steamroller type scenario. When you're making recommendations to global asset allocators and you have your various portfolios, you mentioned earlier Japan and you mentioned the airline sector, where, if I understand correctly, you've been adding to your weighting in those two recently. But I wonder, what have you been doing with regard to raw commodities, processed goods, etc.? Yeah, good question. I've been cutting the ideal weightings, but I'm still over, tremendously overweight relative to my own ideal weightings. And I don't want to sell the stuff. An example being coal stocks is very good example. Uh, you know, they're trading at two and three times earnings. Met Coal's trading at $375 a ton. The stocks don't reflect that at all. So even though intellectually, I feel like I should have less raw commodities, I don't want to sell this. Though I have recently done a bit of a trimming program on that stuff. And what processors for me is mostly steel. And I've trimmed some of those. But, you know, lately, one of the things that's happening is that the steel prices are going up. Hot rolled coil has been going up. It's like close to $1,100 a ton now. So it's another one where I'm overweight to my own recommendations. Japan, I did bump up a point. But I have, I have so much Japan because it's in the regular portfolio. And then I have two Japan-specific portfolios. So I've got lots of Japan. And I really haven't been selling it. And how about emerging markets and the way that they relate to the U.S. dollar? Emerging markets inversely track the dollar almost perfectly. 
And again, we had the, the DXY dollar index fell from about 115 to 102. Why'd that happen? You know, and now it's up to about 104 and a half. And that's good for emerging markets. I'm a little concerned that the path of least resistance for the dollar is up. Uh, emerging markets can be helpfully crunched independent of the U.S. as well, just looking at their own yield curves. Turkey being one where they got the 10-year yield down from 25 to 10, and that created a huge boom. And so I, that was actually one of my better ideas in 2022 was Turkey, and that got up to be about 6 or 7% of the portfolio prior to that earthquake. Another one with a high real interest rate is Brazil, where the uh, selling rate's 13.7 and CPI is about 5.5. So that, you know, I mean, that's why the currency isn't falling. It's a lot easier to buy emerging markets when the Fed is cutting and when the curve isn't inverted. And so, again, it's it's hard for me to like, you know, am I tomorrow going to sit down and write up five individual names in Turkey or Brazil? I mean, probably not because of this curve inversion in the U.S. Um, I'm more comfortable working on Japan, which is what I've been doing lately. But... Again, it's everything is very opportunistic. You know, the world changes by the quarter, by the year, by the decade, and you just try to be more or less in the right place at the right time and, you know, avoid blowing up and catch some of these trends when they're going the right way. Mike, thank you for this very informative insight into the Churchill Research Service. With more time, it would be interesting to discuss in more detail your various country and sector recommendations. It would also be interesting to hear more about your various portfolios and the individual stocks in those portfolios. The Independent Research Forum is offering a short trial to the Churchill Research Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to their full service. More information is available from the Independent Research Forum on request. Many thanks for listening to this RF podcast with Mike Churchill of Churchill Research.